Hello and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime with Kaylin and Elena. Hi Kaylin. Hi. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long week. It's been a cold week. Yes, a cold week. Yeah, we're at, we actually record these a, a couple of weeks out, so the weather might be totally different when you listen to this, but right now, it's not good. So Very windy and very snowy. Yes, and luckily I've had my rage, my burning, burning rage <laughs> at this week's case to keep me warm, because this is probably the case that made me angriest on multiple levels, so... I, I don't even, if, as traumatized as I was by the Toy Box Killer, this one just infuriated me on multiple levels. Oh, well, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, rage is always exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this week, as we mentioned, we're going to be in the lovely state of Indiana. And I believe I also mentioned previously that it's the home of two of my very favorite people on the planet that I don't know, John and Hank Green. So if you are a fan of the Faulkner Stars or any of their other wonderful work. They do all kinds of stuff on YouTube and they're both fabulous authors and I don't know, I have mad crushes on both of them. So. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. We will move on. So we, I, I just feel like I have to make sure people understand that Indiana has some wonderful things because like I said, this week's case was insane and it was once again based on one of your suggestions. So... You had sent me the name of the person I am covering and had also suggested perhaps John Dillinger. Yeah. And I just felt like, you know, John Dillinger, the mafia, organized crime, way done. This person, I have a feeling probably people in Indiana know a lot about him, but I'd never heard this name. Yeah, I had never heard of him either. And given the influence he wielded in that state, it's insane. Yeah, so I, I know normally when I do give you suggestions, I like read the smallest bit about what they are about and usually the time period because it's a big thing for you as you right. like to do the older ones. Well, this one I kind of went a little more in-depth in because I, I actually thought about stealing this case for myself. <laughs> That's why I asked who you had planned on covering. Okay. And when you're like, I don't know, I was like, well, have this. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I think. So the name that you did give me was David Curtis Stevenson. And you had also mentioned, of course, that he was a member of the KKK. And nothing makes me happier than just dragging a white supremacist's name through the mud <laughs> and there's lots of mud for this guy what was so horrifying to me about this case was how much influence this man wielded within the state of indiana and something that i did not know was how incredibly popular and widespread the kkk was in the state of indiana during this time period and, you know, one thing is, I think a lot of us, when we think about deeply entrenched racism, we think of the Deep South, which is not fair. And I'm currently teaching the novel Gone with the Wind to my juniors. <sighs> Worst book ever. Okay, Kaylin has no taste in literature whatsoever. I, but. <laughs> I, I couldn't even do the movie. You let me borrow the movie when I was, okay, I was yeah, supposed to read. The movie is the movie. The book, I'm sorry, the book has a ton of racism, a ton of sexism in it, but I, it's 
still a great novel for many, many reasons. No, that... So I tried to read it okay, when I was supposed to in high school. I tried. I got maybe 100 pages in and I basically said, screw this book. It's the worst <laughs> thing I've ever read. I would rather read Sophie's World over that book. And you know how much I hated <sighs> Sophie's World. But I tried. And then you let me borrow the movie. I got to the intermission and I said, screw this movie. I hate everything about this. It was the worst. Now that you are older and wiser, I would encourage you to try Gone with the Wind again. Maybe maybe we'll do that as a, a side project. <laughs> so, And like I said, it's, it's flawed. There's definitely things, but there's a lot of things we'll discuss about that. So anyway, but I did want to move on. So one of the things when we were talking about gone with the wind with my students that I do try to be clear with them is that yet racism was definitely huge in the south obviously slavery is the reason for the civil war you know we we talked quite a bit about that but it's also prevalent throughout the northern states so you know and I mean slavery was a big part of New York for a long time there's a lot of things that people I don't think always put together historically based on that narrative that you know south is racist the north was better and so on which is an oversimplification so like i said our story today is of the kkk and in indiana which i had no idea that there was such a prevalence and so one of my main sources for this was a really great article from the Smithsonian Magazine, and it's available at smithsonian.com if our listeners are interested. There are, there's a ton of information about this case, though, all over the internet. So, and again, that really surprised me because I just never heard any of this before. So, as of 1925, there were a quarter of a million members of the KKK in the state of Indiana. Jeez. And that's when our crime takes place. Holy cow. Okay. It actually, actually at one point went as high as half a million members. In just Indiana? In just Indiana. Jesus Christ. Which meant that one out of every three white males in Indiana at one point was a member of the KKK. Oh my gosh. Yeah, okay. that just made my head explode on multiple levels. And the other thing that was horrible, bizarre, crazy, of course that the KKK in Indiana did obviously targeted African Americans, black Americans, but there weren't, of course, as many there as there are in other regions of the country. And so they turned their hatred towards pretty much any foreign ethnic group that they could identify that wasn't a white Protestant, and especially Catholics. They really heavily went after Catholics in the state of Indiana. So... And in 1925, you had, as well as, you know, being whatever defenders of white Protestantism or whatever it is they claimed to be, they were also big supporters of Prohibition, which is very ironic since David Curtis Stevenson, who was their grand dragon. And he by was the their way, state leader, wasn't he? Yes, that made him the highest leader in the state of Indiana, which, by the way, can we just talk about the names <laughs> that the KKK uses. I mean, honestly, these are 13-year-old boys just making crap up. Like, it just... <laughs> he was the Grand Dragon of the Indiana KKK, which he was appointed to in 1923. Indiana, by the way, had the largest state chapter of KKK members because of these numbers. He was also something called the 
King Klegel in seven other states. What does that mean? I don't know what the Helen Keller King Klegel is. I don't want to know. Like, I just... The names. Seriously. Anyway, David Curtis Stevenson is one of these people that, at the time, and even as famous as he became... A lot of his friends even said they didn't know that much about him. And I will talk about his past here in a few minutes. But he liked to say, I'm a nobody from nowhere, really. But I've got the biggest brains. And that kind of reminded me of somebody that he who shall not be named on this podcast. Um, But I think a lot of people can probably figure that out. And like this other person, he also rose to have lots of political power by inflaming people's basest racist tendencies. (laughs) So David Curtis Stevenson came from humble beginnings. So I'm going to give a little bit of, what do I want to say, contrast here. So the official story that he liked to tell, he claimed to be the son of a rich businessman from South Bend, Indiana. The truth was... He was born in 1891 in Houston, Texas, the son of a sharecropper. He claimed that he went to college, that he quit college in order to work in the coal business in Evansville, Indiana. The truth is that at some point, and I don't know how old he was, but his family moved to Maysville, Oklahoma when he was a kid. He attended school in a Methodist church. He graduated eighth grade at the age of 16. So obviously there were gaps in his schooling or, you know, something like this. Or he wasn't because, very or, bright. I'm going to say he was, I, I, I mean, as much as I like, would love to just, you know, denigrate his intelligence, the fact that he came to wield the influence that he did he had to have at least had some sort of, you know, Machiavellian sort of political smarts. And the sources I found did say he was a very avid reader in politics, so, and history, by the way. He claimed that when the United States entered World War I in 1917, that he volunteered for the army and was sent to France to fight the Germans. The truth is, he did volunteer, and we'll get into why he volunteered in just a little bit, but throughout the war, he never left the United States. Mm. He was assigned as a recruiter in Boone, Iowa. So, that's where he spends his his time. (laughs) Um. I'm sorry, I did not realize (laughs) the stack of papers that you have. Oh, I went off on this one. I'm telling you. Like, and I could have gone on. So I... I'm sorry. I... Yes. Well, so we normally have notes that we yes. use during our podcast. And you normally have little note cards that are all nice and neat. Yes. And you have a stack. <laughs> I'm telling you, the rage. notebook papers. There was so much more I could have said that I wanted to go into just because I hate this person more than you can know. And like I said, there's so many things about this case that just hit all of my buttons that make me insane. So Okay, I'm sorry, continue. I interrupted. That's no, that's please interrupt. <laughs> <It's> so funny. <laughs> One of the things that he did, so he, you know, we said he, he lied about his past. He did create this false past for himself. And like so many of these 
people who do rise to political power, you know, he knows the buttons to push. He denounces political corruption, even though he's going to be deeply enmeshed in it throughout his career. Um, he decried American imperialism abroad, which was, you know, we had been an isolationist nation up to World War One. A lot of people weren't happy that we had even joined, and we kind of were, you know, back swinging into that in the 1920s. So he's riding a wave of popular opinion there. He preached an end to deficit spending, and he was always waving this back to the Constitution flag, you know, that so many people still today, you know, like, like to pull up. Um, he somehow throughout the course of his career, and I was ne never able to figure out exactly how he made his money. They talked a lot, a lot, a lot about his time with the KKK, but I couldn't, well, and also I didn't have enough time to find as much, as much out about exactly where he got money. But he was very wealthy. He had a yacht that he would take out on Lake Erie where he would entertain a U.S. senator, was well associated with him, a lot of different congressmen, judges, governors, lots of state legislators. He just wielded all of this power. And probably one of the people that he became closest with was a guy named Ed Jackson, who ends up being the governor of Indiana. And that deal, he gets very bitter about, and again, we'll be coming back to that a little later on in our case. The KKK was very involved in Indiana politics and helped people. They were kind of seen as a necessary force to get you elected. And that was definitely the case with Ed Jackson. Well, with the amount of people that were in the KKK, right. it, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, when you're up to one-third of white men, right, yeah, who have that membership. Makes sense. However, so in 1923, he is named the Grand Dragon. I always want to say the Grand Poobah. I don't know what he's named. <laughs> the Grand Dragon of the KKK in Indiana but he, because I don't know, I, I have a feeling there was probably a little jealousy going on. And there was a lot of conflict with the national leader of the KKK. And so at one point, Stevenson had resigned as the Grand Dragon. But then in 1924, he took up the mantle again and pretty made much made the Indiana chapter of the KKK an independent force. So, I mean, they were still doing all the same garbage, right, that KKK, you know, preaches everywhere. He just kind of took it over himself. He didn't want to owe allegiance to... To this, make himself seem bigger. Exactly, to the established hierarchy, yeah. you know. So, even at this time, there are all kinds of rumors that had been trailing behind him about sexual assaults. And just like today, because he is a rich white guy with lots of powerful friends, nothing really happens. And he did have a very checkered past with women that honestly, I mean, even before all the sexual assault allegations came, it's kind of interesting that people hadn't, I don't know, his enemies, I guess, hadn't made more of this. So going back to 1915 is 
he was courting a girl in Oklahoma named Nettie Hamilton, and he put her picture in the newspaper. He was actually working for a newspaper at the time, and put the headline, The Most Beautiful Girl in Oklahoma. And... Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) So it works for a time, because he and Nettie do get married. However, even at this point, so this is 1915, He's born in 19, or in 1891, so he's, what, 21 years old? He's pretty young. Um, But so they marry. He's already a very heavy drinker, and um, he gets in a fight with his boss and ends up losing his job. He's fired, and so he just leaves and leaves pregnant Nettie behind. He just, this is in Oklahoma. He just takes off, leaves her behind, and this is when he ends up joining the Army after Nettie had finally tracked him down and she and she files for divorce. And that seems to be the end of any contact that he had with her or the child. I didn't see okay. that there was ever any more contact after that. Mm-hmm. So he does join the army in 1917 for the short period, becomes a, like we said, a recruiter. And then when the war ends, he's a traveling salesman. And we all know, you know, there's all kinds of jokes about the questionable character of traveling salesmen, and it definitely fits for this loser. Um, He ends up in Akron, Ohio, where he meets and marries a woman named Violet Carroll. And they end up moving to Evansville, Indiana, where he does work for a coal company. So that earlier lie that he liked to tell mm-hmm. about how he dropped out of college to work for this coal company, seems like some of these lies he was weaving things that he had actually done into. It's while he's in Evansville, Indiana, that he starts to get heavily involved with the KKK because they are also on the rise in Indiana at this time. So the two kind of mesh and come together. Despite the fact that the KKK were heavy supporters of prohibition, he drinks heavily. And from very early on, everyone talks about that when he drinks, he turns into a monster. Not that he's a great guy when he's sober, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But at least he's able to maintain some sort of social decorum. But once he drinks, he's incredibly vi- violent. He gives his second wife, Violet, it's recorded that he gave her a black eye. She had scratches on her face. He would kick her. And, you know, that's especially for this time period, for it to be talked about like this was fairly unusual. So by 1922, they divorce. And this is where he gets pretty wild for a while. So he starts dating his 22 year old secretary, he's 31. Um, a woman reports that he tried after some KKK meeting that they had that he tried to force her into his car and that he tried to have sex with her. He tried to rape her. He gets caught in the in a car with this 22-year-old secretary with his pants unbuttoned, although that seems to, I don't know if that was consensual or not, like because they were dating. They did have an established relationship. Um, but a policeman finds them and actually gives him a ticket for indecent exposure, which he does, in fact, plead guilty to. So 
this is where, like I said, I really, so he's a KKK member, which, you know, punch him in the face, right? Um, but he's also obviously violent towards women. He's caught in the act and pleads guilty to this. And that doesn't seem to affect his power in any way. He's still on the up and up with all these powerful people. And that's what just made me crazy. In January of 1924, he tries to rape a manicurist. He was staying in a motel room and he had called for a manicure. So they send this young woman up to do his manicure. He tries to rape her. She struggles mightily and a bellboy hears the ruckus, comes in, tries to help her. He punches the bellboy out. So once again, violent altercation. There's a separate witness. Nothing happens. Um, fall of that same year, 1924, there's a young actress who was at a party at his house. She claims that he knocked her down, bit her, and tried to rape her. Again, does anything happen? Probably not. No. And this is where I'm just steaming because... Back in the summer of 1924, after the attempted rape of the manicurist, guess who does finally try to take action against him? Not the local police officers, not anybody that you would expect to. Oh no, the head of the KKK. What? (laughs) So the national head of the KKK, right, that he had recently split from, apparently is angry about this and so does decide to take some action and because of all of these rumors not just rumors but actual altercations that are happening he finally decides to do something because god knows nobody else is so hang on on. so we have the national head of the kkk who has i guess some sort of morals He's (laughs) something, right? And again, you can make the argument that he's only doing this to get rid of a political rival. So there could be some of that involved here. But anyway, so they do convene a KKK tribunal. So basically, the KKK membership, with all their weird little names, the dragons and the lizards and whoever (laughs) they are, get together. And they do find Stevenson guilty on six charges which include, quote, habitual drunkenness and demonstrating disrespect for virtuous womanhood. So they find him guilty of that. And I found that information on (laughs) famoustrials.com, which I... And they called for his eternal banishment from the KKK. But like I said, he just (laughs) kind of keeps going in Indiana on his own. And they do publish a 50-page report of all of his crimes. Yeah. <laughs> this makes me laugh. Only because... Well, part of it makes me laugh because I know that I find it funny and it, it's... <laughs> this is what enrages you. Yes. These things. Yes. Now, this makes me laugh because the KKK is... I don't want to say pretending. No. Maybe I will use the word pretending. They're, they're pretending to have morals. To yes. like... Well, and I will say, 
Well, I don't, I don't even want to get into that. Good but God. You know I know. I, 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 I have a feeling our discussion group is probably going to blow up over some of this stuff. And it's probably a discussion that definitely needs to continue. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's horrific that, like I said, there's all of this information, enough that the KKK publishes a 50-page document of all of his misdeeds and crimes and nobody in the state of Indiana is doing anything about it. I, That's what is so striking and horrific to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you know. what the police aren't taking care of. Right. Like, at this point, it's sad that the KKK seems to have more... Concern. Concern in, about what he's doing than right. the police are, which is weird because the KKK is the KKK. Right, and they, right. And, and like I said, possibly... This is just a totally Machiavellian political move to get rid of a rival. You could always put that spin on it, too, I'm sure. But anyway, after this happens, Stevenson does lay a bit lower, you know. So he kind of does slink into the shadows just a bit more. Although he's still very, very active with the Indiana governor and a lot of the other politics behind the scenes. And... So these things just continue for about a year, a little less than a year, until March 16th of 1925. And this is where things get incredibly horrific. So the Smithsonian.com article that I read, I'm just going to read you a direct quote for how they describe this. So they talk about that on the morning of March 16th, 1925, a woman, 29-year-old Madge Oberholzer, awakens in a Hammond, Indiana hotel room. And this is how they describe her. Quote, Beneath her dress, chunks of her were missing. Bite marks covered her face, neck, breasts, back, legs, and ankles. A macabre pattern of polka dots etched along her skin. She was bleeding from the mouth, he had even chewed her tongue, end quote. Ew. Yes. So he was literally biting chunks out yes. of her. Yes, and you her. do remember, right, that earlier a woman had said that, that he, he knocked her, her down, bit her, and attempted to rape her. Oh my gosh. So here's the thing. We know, we know of some of these attacks and you and I have discussed this a lot before, and it's you know well established in all of the documentation of serial, sexual, sadistic predators like this. They do this a lot. You know what I mean? So I just I always find myself wondering how many more are out there that we don't know about. Yeah. So so the night before, Madge had been out on a date and she had returned to her house about 10 p.m. And her mother told her that Stevenson's secretary had called with a very important message. Now, she already knew Stevenson. She had been dating a man who had been in charge of the governor's inauguration ball. And apparently, I think that's where she and Stevenson met for the first time. It said that he danced with her that night. And after that, they did start working together. She would, um, she, she had some sort of a government job that was in danger of being um, canceled or whatever. And Stevenson used his influence to help her keep her job. 
they had, um, he had passed, he had gotten some legislation passed in Indiana that there would be like a food and health class that everybody had to take in high school. And the only book that could be used was a book that he had written with Madge Oberhalter's help. And he did make a lot of money from the sales of that book. So did his secretary help him? Or did she not know? And well, these are just things. And I don't even know if this was a male or female secretary. Oh, so, okay. So this was after. Her. Yes. So, so okay. like I said, Madge Oberhalter, she'd been out on a date, gets home at 10 p.m. There's just a message that had been relayed by Stevenson's secretary to her mother that Stevenson was going to be heading to Chicago and he had something very important to discuss with her and needed to see her that night. Like I said, they had been working together, you know, through the government. I'm sure that was the assumption was, oh, something has come up, you know, so he needs to talk to me. She was told that one of his bodyguards would pick her up at her mother's house since he was leaving for Chicago. And so when this guy shows up at the house that she didn't know, but he identifies himself as Stevenson's bodyguard, she goes with him. And... Stevenson was waiting for her. Stevenson and this bodyguard, and there was a second bodyguard involved as well, take her to the train station. Stevenson says, I want you to come to Chicago with me. He tries this romantic thing that that he's always loved her and he needs her. And she's like, no, I don't want to do this. They force her to drink three uh, drinks. She else she gets sick from the alcohol, and while she's kind of sick, they drag her to the train station, and then they force her to get a ticket as well, and they all get on the train together. Once they're on the train, Stevenson attacks, and he rips off her dress. He throws her into the lower berth of the sleeping car where he is, And this is when he bites and rapes and attacks her. The bodyguards had to have known what was going on because they're all, you know, around the same car. They do obviously do nothing to stop this. And the train finally stops in the town of Hammond, Indiana. And at this point, the three men take her off the train and take her to the hotel. I'm not exactly sure why they decided to disembark other than she had to have been just a mess and I don't know if she pled with them but anyway so they go to this hotel Stevenson checks them in and claims that she is his wife and they must have done a good job of hiding her from you know other eyes so they get her up to the room and it seems like they rest for a while or whatever breakfast is served in the room and Madge seems to have pulled herself together enough or kind of hatches a plan she does beg him to let her send a uh, telegram to her mother letting her mother know that she's okay he dictates it but the telegram is sent so her parents just assume right that she's yeah gone for business or something with this guy um she convinces him to let her leave the hotel one of the sources that I read said that she claimed she was going to go buy some makeup at a drugstore. Another said that she was going to go out and buy a hat. So I'm not sure exactly. But anyway, she does convince him to let her leave. And he sends one of his bodyguards with her who drives her in a car to the drugstore. 
And when she gets there, she buys something called bichloride of mercury tablets. Now, bichloride of mercury tablets, you've probably heard of like mercuchrome or, you know, which people used to like paint on wounds as a, just as a, like an antiseptic. Okay. Um, It's along those lines. And you used to be able to just walk into any drugstore in the United States and buy this over the counter. It's incredibly poisonous. And just three tablets can kill a person. She takes six. Immediately, of course, gets very, very ill. And it's this case, actually, that eventually leads to them stopping the sale of these tablets in drugstores. So... She, by the time she gets back to the hotel, she's very ill. She begins to vomit blood. The three men get concerned enough that they decide to put her in a car and take her back to Indianapolis. Why they decide on that course of action, I'm not exactly sure. And apparently, she had been begging them to just leave her by the side of the road. Like, you know, she, she did, she's trying to find a way to escape them. They won't let her. While the one bodyguard is driving, Stevenson and the other bodyguard are in the back of the car with her drinking. And Stevenson is bragging about how the law's not going to touch him, that he has all of this influence, seems very unconcerned by her, about her. They eventually arrive at Stevenson's home, and Madge's mother is there waiting for them. And she's very worried about her daughter. They tell her, and I guess Madge is still in the car. They tell her some lie about how Madge is okay or whatever, and that you know she'll be home soon. But what they get, they get rid of her mom. Her mom goes back home, and they then carry Madge up to a room over Stevenson's garage, where they keep her for another day. On March seventeenth, so two days after this just brutal rape and attack. They finally take her to her house. She's very weak, she's sick, and they threaten her on the drive over to tell her mother and family that she had been in a car accident, and that is how she had gotten these wounds. A car accident does not cause (laughs) biting chunks out of your body, but okay. Yeah. All right. So... Like I said, the delusion here. And and this, but this is the thing. So you look at this man, you look at the things he has done for years. He has gotten away with them. So this level of hubris, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Of thinking, no, I can just, I can just have her tell people she's in a car and nobody's going to question me. Yeah. Because look at what he's gotten away with up to this point. Yeah. You know? It, and that's why I said, I just, I lose my mind about stuff like this. So... Anyway, the bodyguard carries her into her room and lays her out in her bed. When her mother comes to check on her, and there was also a boarder that was living in the house, so there's another person living with her parents, her family, who's paying rent, basically, to live there. Um, They both check on her, and they can see that she has these open wounds. They talked particularly about how she had an open one on her breast, and when they feel her she's cold so they call their family doctor dr kingbury this is again a time when a lot of medical care took place at home doctors would come to you and at first she 
goes along with the car accident story, but as he starts examining her and everything, she finally confesses what has actually happened to her. Dr. Kingbury says that she is definitely in shock and he keeps, you know, he's trying to do the best he can with her. She does confess to him that she took these bichloride of mercury tablets. And while over the course of several days, he does finally tell her that she is not going to recover. And he, I guess he makes that decree on the 28th of March. So 11 days after he begins her treatment, he can see that there's, he's not going to be able to save her. And when he tells her this news, the doctor tells her this, that I'm sorry, you know, I can't help you. She tells him that she wants to die and that that was, of course, her intention. That's why she took the pills. So they have a friend of the family who is an attorney. And this person comes in and takes what's called her dying declaration because those had a lot of legal weight and then she finally does die on April 14th, 1925. Yeah, and during that four-week period, Dr. Kingbury came to the house every day, did his best for her, and even Dr. Kingbury said that he wasn't 100% sure if it was the pills that killed her or that possibly she had some infection, some sepsis maybe that got into her blood, but he said he wasn't sure exactly what killed her, if it was just the pills or a combination of them. Yeah. And, of course, that's going to become important later on here. So because she gave this dying declaration before she died, everyone knew what had what happened had to happened. her. Um, she, of course, named Stevenson and the two bodyguards. And, of course, he claims, oh, you know, no, I'm innocent. However, thank God, finally things are turning against him. And on October 12th, he goes to trial. Good. So, and I know you hate those long waits. Yeah. But I mean, April to October. Is, is, yeah, it's not that long. Yeah. And especially given who he was, the political clout he carried, they had a very difficult time seating a jury that, you know, they didn't, that they felt like could be, yeah. you know, unbiased. And so, of course, Stevenson and the two bodyguards, you know, the defense is basically, hey, she committed suicide. You know, you can't come at us for murder. But because they had the dying declaration where she laid out the rape and this insane attack where he, you know, bit her like an animal, he is found guilty on the 14th of November. This part you're not going to like. Of second degree murder. Uh, I feel like kidnapping should also be in there. Right. And I don't know that if that was part of the charges. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the, the thing I saw just said that he was guilty of second degree murder. Well, and as much as that does make me a little mad, I get it. Because he didn't do, he didn't rape her in all of that to kill her. I don't think he had the intention of killing her. But he knew she had taken those chloride tablets. Everyone knew how poisonous they were. Yeah. They were a well-established motif. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like lots of stories. There was a, there's a famous story of uh, the actress Mary Pickford some years before. Her husband had somehow been involved with the poisoning of a girl involving these tablets. So people knew about this. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? And the fact that they're so cavalier driving her back to Indianapolis and puts her in a room above his garage. Does that make sense? He's, yeah. 
to me, that's when it becomes first degree. You know this person needs medical attention. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I do. I do understand why it's second degree, though. Okay. So that doesn't make me as mad. Okay. Well, it, it, I feel like it normally would, but I also feel more like kidnapping needs to be in the charges. And it may have been, you yeah. know. But anyway, his bodyguards are both acquitted. Why? That's annoying. Yes. <laughs> and from here on out, you are going to get pissed. Oh, so okay. <laughs> he is sentenced to life. Good. Which I think was pretty much the standard then. With or without parole. Well, here's where we get to that. So, when he was sentenced, of course, he still has this ego. And remember, he's got his buddy, the governor, right, that he helped get elected. And he really believes that the governor is going to pardon him. By July 1927, this pardon has not come. And I'm pretty sure it's just because by that time, public opinion is so against this guy. There's no way. So, he's pissed. He's very angry. So he releases all the information that he has about all the KKK payoffs that happened to the governor and other high-ranking Indiana politicians. This leads to Governor Jackson being indicted, as well as others, and it leads to a public, a, a legal crackdown on the KKK, uh, the KKK in Indiana, and that's kind of the end. That's what breaks its stranglehold in Indiana. Okay, so that is actually really exciting. Yes. So as much as I hate this man for the monstrous things that he mm-hmm. did, he kind of did everybody a favor. Sort of. And it, but again, like I said, this is such a, to me, this is such a great mirror image of what the national leader of the KKK had done to him yeah. three years prior with this, you know, whatever this tribunal that they had and the 50 pages they released on him. Yeah. They're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I agree. Because it's, this is basically the, what he is doing is if I'm going down, everyone exactly. else is going down exactly. with me. So he is paroled in 1950. I know. Which, hold on. Eight months later, he violates his parole. Okay. So he's immediately put back into prison. However, just six years later, 1956, he's discharged again. Why? I don't know, but they let him out. He marries his third wife. Okay. And then in 1961, here's the part. Hold on to your chair, dear. He's arrested after trying to rape a 16-year-old girl. Oh, mm. Want to know what his penalty is? Probably fucking nothing. A $300 fine, which he pays out of pocket and walks. Oh, my God. So here we are again, right? This is where we start with him getting away with sexual assaults, attempted sexual assaults, no penalties. Even after everything that happens in between here, 1961, $300 fine. That blows my mind. Like, you would think that after he already did prison time for this brutal kidnapping and rape of this woman that he worked with, and now he, they let him out. Yes. After not serving Uh his full life sentence. So his third wife leaves him. Good. Not an official divorce, but she just takes off. Um, He ends up in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And at the age of 74, he marries... 
a 55-year-old widowed Sunday school teacher, even though he hadn't, didn't have a legal divorce, you know, people just do what they do. Yeah. And he dies on the 28th of June, 1966, in her arms after collapsing while bringing her a basket of fruit. And her last words of him were that she knew nothing of his background, that she loved him, and, quote, he was a wonderful person. Oh, that's disgusting. So, yeah, this case infuriates me, like I said, on every possible level. So, and what make I think what makes me the most mad is that he did do time for the... the And a fair amount of time. I mean, what, 1927, right? Or 19... He's sentenced in late 1925, and he's in prison for 25 years till 1950, he gets out eight months later, gets sent back in for six more years, but still. But my thing is, is the fact that he didn't just, which I mean, kidnapping or rape or any of that is never okay, but his $300 fine, he raped a child. Well, he attempted rape. That one was okay. just attempted. Still. Exactly. I it mean, was a child. And here's another thing, and I've heard other people talk about this. And, and actually, I think the first people that I heard talk about this was on My Favorite Murder, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And, you know, they one of them talked about how inf- it infuriates her that attempted murder gets such a lesser sentence than... Murder, yeah, and the only thing that's different about those two is, is that they failed. Yeah, you screwed up, or maybe your victim was, you know, super lucky or super strong. Or and I kind and I have to say, like, I hadn't really thought of that before, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel this way about attempted rape. I mean, you grab a sixteen-year-old girl, you have every intention of raping her, she just manages to fight you off. Yeah, your intention. I mean, the only thing that stopped you was her, or or maybe yeah. like if somebody else, could, whatever. Yeah. But that, to me, yeah, you should pay the same penalty. I agree. I think because you're gonna have these people. I'm always for almost anything. If they do it once, they'll do it again. Whether it's oh yeah, murder, rape. If even if it's as small as like cheating, like if they do it once, they'll do it again. So these people who. Or get off on the attempted murder or the attempted rape, they're gonna do it again. Well, and he's a perfect case of this, right? Exactly. We have this, you know, long trail of him sexually assaulting, attempting to sexually assault people, and nobody does anything until it leads to murder. Yeah. You know? And I'm sorry, I, I believe he murdered this woman. If you know, if you t- if if I come across you and you are so badly injured that it looks like you're going to die and I don't do anything, I'm culpable. I'm allowing you to die. Yeah. That is a form of murder. I'm sorry. It is. And, ugh, like I said, I hate him. I hope he is just suffering everything he ever inflicted on anyone. That was a lot more than I expected because I did look a little bit into it, but... That was a lot more than I expected. I this is my longest one ever, too. Because, I like know. I said, I just kept it the deeper I got into And there's so much more out there. Like I said, you know, there's a ton of stuff on the internet. You can go explore. Just horrific. So. I'm glad I gave you that. I'm glad I, I suggested <laughs> this. So. 
All right. Well, we will wrap this up then. Uh, tell us what you think on our discussion board. And follow will... us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And next this episode <laughs> on Thursday, we will hear Kaylin's case. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>